Hi, everybody. Welcome to North Coast Chronicles podcast, Tales from the Great Lakes. I'm your host, Helen Burrell. Please join me every month on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, ASPN, as we share the nature, history, folklore, and charm of the Great Lakes, America's fourth seacoast. want to remind our listeners that we are open to suggestions for podcast topics and, of course, sponsors. Just email me at northcoastchronicles at gmail.com. And be sure to check out the entire collection of podcasts on ASPN related to our oceans, coast, and inland seas at coastalnewstoday.com. Today's podcast is Charting the Great Lakes. We're very lucky to have with us Commander Matt Jaskowski. He is the commanding officer of the NOAA survey ship Thomas Jefferson. The Thomas Jefferson ship is homeported in Norfolk, Virginia, and it is a hydrographic survey vessel that maps the ocean to aid maritime commerce, improve coastal resilience, and understand the marine environment. So the Thomas Jefferson is used to log the data that NOAA cartographers use to create and update the nation's nautical charts. Today, though, the Thomas Jefferson is in Lake Erie, and and, and it's charting the Great Lakes. So we're so happy to have uh, Commander Jaskowski here. Welcome, Matt. Yeah, thank you. It's a, it's a real pleasure. Thank you. And with us, as always, is our trusty engineer and my talented co-producer, Tyler Buckingham. Hi, Tyler. What's going on? Well, Helen, it is going very well. How are you? Good. Thank you. We've had such beautiful weather and <clears throat> just makes me appreciate the summer. And I'm very excited that this week I will be heading back to Lake Erie uh, to see family and friends and cannot wait to get there um, and enjoy the summer up there. It's it's so much better. I will confess I did write to Commander Jaskowski and say, hey, any chance you can have the vessel come by, you know, where I'm going to be? I mean, it's so presumptuous, right? And he said, well, like, we, well, we were kind of in the area, so I'm not so sure we can get there again. But yeah, of course, because it's really all about me, right? But uh, anyway, I, I, I so appreciate the fact that Matt can join us today. Now, Tyler, our last episode was about surfing the Great Lakes with Ella Scrocky and Ben Sass from Regional Surf Shops, who shared their experience as longtime surfers in both summer and winter in the Great Lakes. So, Tyler, where are you on the I must experience winter surfing in Lake Superior meter? I would, at this moment, I've got to be honest with you, it's about 106 degrees here in Austin, Texas. So it sounds good, actually. I'm intrigued. I'm going to say I'm a, I'm an 8 out of 10 on trying it on a try. So icicles hanging off your wetsuit sounds kind of good to you. It sounds actually quite nice uh, <laughs> at, this, at this very moment. Um, you know, I have to say we're like lucky to have our power on. Uh, this is a very serious heat wave that we are contending with. But uh, in all seriousness, I, I, if anything, I would want to sit on the beach or stand on the beach uh, in a very heavy winter coat and watch because, my Lord, that's got to be some spectacle. It's funny you called it nice because I don't think at any point did Ella or Ben say it was nice, although they loved winter surfing. And they had a lot to say about winter surfing. Um, and they said it was exciting and interesting and trudging through the snow to get to the water and, you know, and then get in your car and turn on the heat and get warmed up. <laughs> okay. Nice isn't what they really said, but they did say it was way cool. Uh, and it was clear that you really kind of build up to it. But it was also interesting to learn that you can learn to surf in the summer because obviously the waves are milder. Um, but it was a, it was just a fun podcast, I thought. Um, what struck you um, that was, I mean, you've surfed a little, you said, being a, you know, the California guy. What struck you as the most different between coastal surfing and Great Lakes surfing as you listen to them? Well, uh, I paid close attention to the, uh, the word chaotic waves came up a bit and the rhythm. I think it, because of the reach, uh, as was described, the, just the amount of wind on the water, you get a different type of wave. And, uh, I, I, I've, you know, when, when I think about it, it makes a lot of sense. You know, when I've seen just the little waves on like Lake Michigan in Chicago, there is a chop to them that, uh, I think makes for a different type of experience. And that would, that's got my interest. I mean, when I think of, you know, growing up, uh, playing in the waters of Ventura, California, what I envision are just these like long sets that you could kind of see out to the horizon. And I don't, I don't know if you get those on the Great Lakes. I think it's more of a, a wave pops up and you got to be ready. And, uh, and, and as was said, certain locations, interestingly, Helen, we, he talked about uh, Southern Lake Michigan in Indiana as being a hot spot because of some of the features out in the water that create an interesting break. So that would also be interesting to uh, explore. 
yeah, and Ella said that when she would go and surf um, on the coast in saltwater, she just couldn't believe how buoyant and easy it was to 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 surf. That you know, when she paddled, she actually moved, and then when you come back to the lakes with freshwater, which is not as which is heavier basically, and you're not as buoyant, she goes her arms. She couldn't believe how tired her arms would get. It's just, it is it's very different. However, you don't get eaten up by a shark, uh, and um, you do have some options, you know, and that winter surfing, if, if you see the videos, uh, online, it's pretty crazy, but I, I mean, someone like me, who's not a surfer to begin with, I'm not sure, but it could be fun to watch. Like you said, on the shore with a big winter coat on. Well, and the, the te- I just have to say, I, I, I take to heart the new technologies that are coming online, uh, better wetsuits. I see the glass very half full for great lake surfing. Um, Yes, it's definitely going a bit bigger and bigger. Um, but funny, you should mention wetsuits because I always listen to each of our podcasts after we do them. I really like to learn from my mistakes, you know, as a host. But I have to admit, when I heard myself saying that I don't wear much neoprene, I busted out laughing because, I, listen, I don't wear neoprene <laughs> at all. I don't wear wetsuits. The closest I come is like this dress material called scuba material, and which is actually a form of neoprene called chloroprene rubber, which sounds just hor- horrible, but it's really like a double knit stretchy material, and it's taken the name scuba because it actually is a you know a double knit that comes from neoprene, but it isn't at all like a wetsuit, and it won't help me. In, in to keep me warm. Um, it's just that it also doesn't biodegrade and it melts when subjected to a lot of heat. So that's my neoprene story. But I, I think of it and I said, I don't wear much neoprene. <laughs> so what's that like? <laughs> like, okay. But we learned that if you're going to do winter surfing, you're going to get a little thicker neoprene, five millimeters versus six millimeters. And you don't have to wear it to understand what that means, that you need to stay warm. Uh, and especially since a lot of surfing carries well into the fall and even winter if you're that brave. Now, in category of sharing life experiences, I first really learned about NOAA's charting and mapping responsibilities when I was on the Oceanography Subcommittee of the House Merchant Marine and Fisheries Committee. Now, that's a committee that was reorganized about 30 years ago and doesn't really exist in the form it was then. But I really got to know those NOAA programs because I reviewed the budgets for them. Um, And um, when I left uh, government and I was um, doing some lobbying of sorts um, to support charting and mapping to get additional funds for NOAA, uh, we were trying to take care of that 300-year backlog for charts and maps. I know that's been reduced, and I know that uh, Commander Juskowski can talk about that. Um, but um, I think I'm when you get to know these programs, first of all, they're very cool. Um, and it's a lot of work to chart our nation's waters. I mean, that's a lot of coastline. Right. And and you get into places like the Great Lakes or we talk about the Arctic a lot where there's a lot of charting and mapping yet to do. And they often talk about um, uh, surveyed to modern standards. Um, And still a lot of the Great Lakes has yet to be surveyed to modern standards. And we're going to ask Matt what that means. Um, So, Commander Jaskowski, you are the boss. You're the captain of sorts, the commanding officer of the uh, Thomas Jefferson. And by the way, I'm assuming it was named Thomas Jefferson because Thomas Jefferson Jefferson established, President Thomas Jefferson established Coast Survey uh, over 200 years ago, which eventually then was molded into a part of what is now NOAA today. But um, Commander, um, you know, the I understand that, I, I guess I was surprised to hear that you really didn't have a NOAA ship um, in the Great Lakes for the last 35 years. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely correct. This is the uh, the first NOAA ship that has been up uh, up in the Great Lakes in, in over three decades. Uh, and you're and you're right. The the ship is named after uh, President Thomas Jefferson, the, the third president who signed into law the the uh, the act that created uh, the what was then called the Survey of the Coast, uh, which turned into the Office of Coast Survey, which is a, a a part of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. It's over over two hundred years, so we've we've been kind of hard at ocean mapping for over 200 years and and, uh, and still plugging away at it. Yeah, one of the first really important jobs of the federal government. Um, when we did one on lighthouses, Tyler put a quote in from Ben Franklin that said that lighthouses are more important than churches. Well, I'm not going to debate that, of course. Um, but the fact is, I would have to say that, you know, with lighthouses and, and charting and mapping, um, really, 
was how we had to preserve our, our trade uh, was hugely important for the country, uh, a fledgling country. And so, but still incredibly important today, given the number of ships, recreational vessels, um, and people out on the water. Now, the Thomas Jefferson is home ported in Norfolk, Virginia. So you're basically, that's your home. Um, and um, you go out from there to places. But tell me about the adventure of getting from Virginia into the Great Lakes, because um, a lot of people really don't quite understand. I mean, we've talked about the Welland Canal, and we've talked about, you know, the seaway of sorts, but I'd love to know a little bit about your adventure. Like, um, how long did it take you to go from Norfolk, Virginia, to, let's say, into the St. Lawrence River and get up there? And what was it like to go through the locks and, and all of that? Oh, yeah, it was absolutely amazing. Um, it's, it's a trip I had never done before. Uh, so it was the first time I'd ever made a, a transit through the St. Lawrence Seaway was this was this transit coming into the lakes on Thomas Jefferson. Um, it took us a little over uh, a little over two weeks, between two and three weeks. We left Norfolk. Um, we had a couple of stops along the way to do some projects around uh, around Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Um, then we transited across uh, Gulf of Maine, uh, south of uh, Cape Breton Island and into the Gulf of St. Lawrence. And then... Uh, through the St. Lawrence Seaway, past Montreal, um, through the there are a series of seven locks where you go through the St. Lawrence uh, River, and then once you get into Lake Ontario and cross Lake Ontario, you go through the Welland Canal, which is a, a series of eight eight more locks that take you over the essentially it takes you over the the um, over Niagara Falls, it takes you over the Niagara Escarpment, coming between uh, uh, Lake Ontario and Lake Erie. Um, and once we got into Lake Erie, it was um, just a, a quick transit across the lake uh, to Cleveland. So you're currently living from Cleveland. So is this trip to the Great Lakes, how long are you going to be in Lake Erie? And are you heading north at all to uh, some of the upper lakes as well? Uh, no, we are going to be spending most of our summer here working in Lake Erie. Uh, we do have a few small projects in Lake Ontario before we leave. Um, where we're working right now is near Erie, Pennsylvania. So we're kind of in the eastern side of Lake Erie. Um, and this work is in support of uh, proposed sanctuaries. The work in, in Lake Ontario is the same. So while they do have applications for commercial applications for updating the nautical charts for, for maritime use, the, the, the primary purpose for us being out on these projects, these two projects around Erie, Pennsylvania and in Lake Ontario are for proposed uh, sanctuaries, um, maritime reserves. Um, but uh, that's, a, that's a, an ancillary, um, typically an ancillary uh, use for the data that we collect. Most of our data, the primary point of most of our data is for, is for safe navigation and for commercial vessels and recreational boaters. I want you to tell me a little bit about the Thomas Jefferson, but sorry, I'm going to start with another Helen story again. Um, when I was um, kind of leading a group called the Marine Navigation Safety Coalition, and that's the group that we used to help um, um, uh, get more funding for Coast Survey. Now, this is just a number of years ago, uh, maybe 20 years ago. Anyway, the um, during that time, uh, NOAA was trying to get the Thomas Jefferson from Navy because Navy owned it. And also at that time, um, and we really wanted NOAA to have it. And this is not to say that the Maritime Administration shouldn't have it, because they also needed it for training ship. And they've certainly um, kind of filled that gap since then. But I heard that NOAA was competing with Navy for the um, for the ship with the Maritime Administration. And I, we wrote letters to Navy saying you should give it to NOAA. But what cracks me up now that I think about it, thinking we were, so, oh, my God, we got it to NOAA. That's where we wanted it for charting and mapping. But the fact is... NOAA was run by a retired vice admiral from NOAA, from Navy. So where do you think it was going to go? You know, so, but I will say congratulations to, to NOAA. Um, it's a, it seems like it's a really good ship. But tell me um, a little bit about her. How long is she? What is it like to live on it? And how do you actually do the surveying? Is all the surveying done um, directly from um, like uh, uh, from side, so, side scan sonar, sonar from the ship itself or on other boats that go out from the ship? Yeah, sure. Well, I, 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 I certainly applaud your efforts in getting the ship uh, into NOAA from Naval Oceanographic. She's a wonderful vessel. Um, she's been fantastically maintained. She's, uh, she's getting a little old, but she's incredibly well-built and incredibly well-maintained. And she's been a, a really impressive asset for NOAA over the last um, 18 or 20 years, um, doing a lot of high-profile work, um, responses to Deepwater Horizons, responses to um, Hurricane Sandy, Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Rita, Hurricane Maria. Um, the ship has had a really, really impressive uh, span of time in uh, working for NOAA and Coast Survey. Um, but to, to, I guess to dig a little deeper into your, into your question, she's uh, 200, 208 feet long, um, 
we carry two additional small boats that have the same capabilities of the, the same hydrographic capabilities of the ship that we can use to get into shallower areas or areas that we may not want the ship to go uh, for various reasons. Um, we do carry, we do have the ability to tow side scan sonars, which are uh, kind of a broad swath of um, high resolution imagery sonar. So it gives us kind of a black and white picture of what the seafloor looks like. And it's very good for finding small objects or things of anthropogenic origin. Think man-made, man-made stuff, um, wrecks or um, obstructions or small things on the bottom. But um, the kind of a bread and butter system that we use is called the multi-beam echo sounder. Um, and what that uses a, is a, a, a pulse of energy, a sound pulse that comes out from a, uh, a sonar, um, bounces off the bottom of the seafloor, the lake bed in this, in this instance, uh, returns back to the sonar. And we use that that time, the time, we measure the time that it takes for that sound to get to the bottom and back to the sonar to, to, to gauge the depth um, underneath the ship at the time. And uh, multi-beam echo sounders take a wide swath, about about 120 degree swath under the ship as we're moving along. So we kind of move along in, in kind of a grid pattern, like kind of like mowing your lawn. Um, so we're out here kind of mowing the lawn on the seafloor, but instead of using a, a blade to cut grass, we're using uh, sound to get images of the bottom. So I guess that's lake floor instead of seafloor, but um, it is the fourth seacoast, so I think it's all the same. So so you're primarily doing all coastal work, correct? You're not doing any deep water uh, bathymetry? That is correct. Yeah, Lake Erie is, uh, is a very shallow lake, so all the, all the work we're doing in, in, uh, in Lake Erie is, is considered shallow water, uh, shallow water mapping. That's correct. So um, um, you've done around Cleveland. Um, you did do the areas around the lakes in the Western Basin. Um, and as you said, the Western Basin in particular is pretty shallow. I think the average depth is 22 feet, which is super shallow. Uh, and then um, as you go, and now you're all the other end in Erie. So um, two questions here. One is, um, as you're, are you finding anything surprising? Um, if you hadn't been there for 35 years, I'm not so sure how um, fine the the measurements you could take 35 years ago were as compared to today and uh, is the resolution better um are the um the the points between measurements closer or more often than they were and 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 my second question is really um how you coordinate this with canada hydro um and if you're you're doing any of canadian waters as well yeah, ex excellent questions. Yeah, um, so the, to answer the resolution question, yeah, um, yes, the data that were collected, um, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, were very coarse in resolution. Um, we would, in those days, you'd use a uh, what was called a single beam or a vertical beam echo sounder, and it pretty much gave you one data point directly below the ship. And again, the the, the the ships in those days would run a similar grid pattern, so you could have quite a bit of distance between each one of those single single. Um, uh, sounding measurements. Resolution that we can get nowadays from the multi-beam echo sounders is much, much higher resolution um, on the order of typically around 50 centimeters. So we can find a 50 centimeter object and portray that. Um, we can get even finer um, if the need if the need be. Um, and it's full coverage. So we have, we're doing a full high resolution coverage of all the areas we're working, um, which is something that's never been done um, in this, in these part of the lake. So it's, so it's a, it's a, it's an, interesting and, and, uh, and kind of exciting prospect that we don't really know what we're going to find when we start looking around with these high resolution sonars because some of these areas may have never been looked at before. Um, yeah, we have found a lot of interesting inter interesting things. Um, um, of course, any any um, shipwrecks or anything like that that we find, we, we um, will send those data to the State Historic Preservation Office um, for for uh, to, to analyze those data to see if those are historically significant shipwrecks or if there are any any additional uh, precautions that we need to put into place before we make those data public. So have you found any shipwrecks that were not on the chart? We have, yes, we have, uh, we have, we have uh, found a few um, shipwrecks here and there, um, ranging in size from very, very tiny little small um, things that look like, uh, you know, like a cabin cruiser style. Um, and it's uh, some of them, we're not really sure the age or the, or the, or the origin of where they may have come from, but there are some, Certainly, some some anthropogenic um, things that we found on the seafloor that that um, look to be shipwrecks. Yeah. Have you found Nessie, which is the um, supposedly the, you know Nessie, right? It's the it's the, the the creature of the 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 legend of the creature of the Great Lakes. Uh, any indication that we have our own Loch Ness Lake Erie monster? Not yet, not yet. <laughs> but we're looking really hard. We've, we, Thank uh, you. We, uh, 
we heard, we heard about that before we came up, and it's it's kind of been a a, a running joke on the on the ship that we're we're looking. That's what we're that's what we're looking for. Well, you will be famous if you do find something. I will tell you that <laughs> could be amusing. But it's, if you do, make sure it's a very fuzzy resolution picture that you take of, so we can all keep guessing. Um, but uh, uh, so. Um, in terms of obstructions to navigation, right, which is what a chart is hoping to um, deal with or have people prevent running into, are you finding any obstructions that were surprising to you um, that you really th- could think probably are going to have to be removed? Um, I don't know if you send that to Army Corps to have them remove it or anything like that you're, you're seeing that's different? Uh, well, we haven't found anything that was uh, so dangerous as to warrant sending it to the Army Corps for removal, and, and that is something that we have done done before in the past. That, that's that's typically something that may happen after um, you know when we're doing a hurricane response or a major storm response. Um, if we're working in a in a in a, in a channel um, like an approach channel into a, a major port, if we surveyed in that area and we found something that was had been blown over from the wreck, um, we would pass those data along to the Corps of Engineers and the United States Coast Guard and. Uh, for removal, um, this is something that could pose an immediate um, and significant danger to any traffic going going in and uh, in and out of that port. Um, but typically, when we're looking for things kind of further offshore, we want to find things that could represent a danger to the surface navigation, but may not necessarily need to be removed as much as portrayed on the chart, so that they're known to mariners and mariners can avoid them. Um, that tend that tend to be that tends to be more the dispensation of the of the the dangers that we find is just, just through making them known, making them public. While you're doing bathymetry along the coastline, do you simultaneously also do some remote sensing, you know, with an airplane and a LIDAR to do some coastal mapping at the same time? Sure, sure. Um, the, uh, that's a huge part of the, of, of the ocean mapping effort, um, NOAA-wide ocean mapping effort. effort. And, um, you know, uh, kind of paradoxically, the, the shallower areas tend to be, tend to be the harder area, areas for ships and, and boats to work. The efficiency is, is much less in shallow water because as I've as I was discussing earlier, that that um, multi-beam echo sounder has kind of a fixed angular fixed um, position, which makes kind of a cone shape. Um, if you're imagining it, that sound going through the water would look like a cone. So as that cone gets closer to the top, it gets narrower and narrower. So as that as that depth gets shallower and shallower, that that swath gets shorter and smaller and smaller. Um, a, a kind of a general estimate would be roughly uh, three times the depth of water would be would be your swath to port and starboard so if you're working in a mile of if you're working in water that's a mile deep you've got three to four miles of of swath that you're covering but if you're working in an area that's only 10 meters deep you're only 30 to 40 meters um in depth on or in in swath on either side um and and oftentimes those tend to be areas that where where um remote sensing works really well um particularly lidar airborne lidar from from aircraft um, it's not something that we are are coordinating uh, specifically on this project. There are um, coastal mapping flights that are done um, with LIDAR through NOAA, through NOAA's remote sensing division. It's not something that we are specifically doing or coordinating this time. Um, the ship does carry a, uh, a small drone that we use for shoreline verification, um, where we use to take uh, images of, uh, of the, of the nearshore area, the shoreline areas for, for, for portrayal on the chart. I always understood that uh, NOAA collaborated with Canada Hydro when it came to doing charting and mapping, but maybe that's really on the St. Lawrence River. So I, I, I'm now. Will you do any um, charting at all on the Canadian side? And do they do any charting on the U.S. side? And I, I'm sure you share information. But I'm just curious as you get into Lake Erie, how you know how you're coordinating information. Yeah, it's, that's a great question, and we, and we will. We are um, we are sending one of our small boats to do a, a detached field party project in the in the Detroit River. Um, so while the, the ship will continue to work in Cleveland or in Erie, Pennsylvania, the, the launch one of our small boats will go with the team and work uh, in Detroit in the, in, in the Detroit River for about a month, and they'll be staging from shore in and out of Detroit. And there's a lot of um, maritime boundary crossing that goes that happens in, in the Detroit River. Um, you know kind of understandably. Uh, so we work very closely with the uh, Canadian Hydrographic Service, uh, particularly in that area. There's a kind of a commonality of, of uh, unity of effort working in those areas where we can, we can survey in the Canadian waters, they can survey in, in U.S. waters, and we kind of share those data, take those data, and portray them on both of our charts. Um, the ship will not be working, do, do any, any data collection. The ship itself will not be doing any data collection in Canadian waters. We're going to be working exclusively in U.S. waters, Ohio waters, and, and Pennsylvania, and, and um, a little bit in New York um, when we're in Ontario. Um, 
yeah, we have, a, we have an excellent relationship with Canadian Hydrographic Service, um, as well as many of the other uh, hydrographic offices throughout the world. The United Kingdom Hydrographic Office is, a, is another great partner with NOAA. Tell me what it's like to live on the ship. So you're based out of Cleveland right now. By the way, are you down on 9th Street on the pier down there at the Coast Guard Station? Where are you located in Cleveland right now? Uh, well, when we type in Cleveland, we're at Pier 26, which is right next to the Browns uh, football stadium, which is an excellent, excellent place to tie up. Cleveland is a really, really fun town, and we're kind of right in the heart of it, um, which is really, really wonderful for the crew. The crew love kind of being in a new place. None of us, had, none of us, I don't think, had ever been to Cleveland before. Um, we've certainly never been here on a ship. Um, so coming into Cleveland and tying up there and, and being able to experience the town, you know, getting out to a baseball game and, and uh, you know, just uh, – enjoying the town as it is, has has been really wonderful. Uh, So yeah, we're at Pier 26, just right downtown. Prior prior to being at Pier 26, we were tying up at the uh, Great Lake Shipyard, which is a little bit further up the river, further further up the old river, um, off the Cuyahoga. Um, But yeah, this is uh, kind of right at the waterfront right now. So it's a a wonderful spot. And living on a ship is great. It's, um, there are about 35 of us that live on here. Um, It's, you know, I I suppose kind of how you, maybe when you envision living on a ship, it's, it's about like that. Everyone's, most people have roommates. You're in, you're in a, in a bunk bed and, and, uh, you know, there's a galley. We have stewards who make meals, make our meals for us every day. It's 24 hour operations. So a third of the crew is, is always up doing something, either driving the ship or operating the sonars or, or maintaining the engine equipment. So it's a kind of three shifts working throughout the day to cover a 24 hour period. Now you're the commander. You don't have to share a, a room, a stateroom, right? You get your own bunk. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, that, that's true. I, I didn't say everyone shares a room, uh, but that's that's true. I guess I one of the privileges of being in command is that you get your own room. <laughs> yeah, I, I would hope so. Um, so yeah, so I'm trying to picture this. Literally, when you go out from Cleveland and Lake Erie, you're going out for how long at a time? And the, the, the ship is working 24-7 that whole time, right? Yes, ma'am. That's correct. Yeah, we, we typically go out for between two to three weeks. Uh, so we'll, we'll pull into Cleveland for, uh, for a weekend. Um, we'll reload on, on food and uh, stores, and we may need to get fuel or drinking water, things like that. Um, once we leave, we, once we leave Cleveland after a couple of days, we'll go back out for, for two weeks or three weeks. And the ship is operating the, full, the whole time, 24 hours a day for the full three-week um, leg um the launches we only we only use the launches during daylight hours so we may put the we may put both boats over at you know say seven o'clock in the morning and, and recover them around uh seven o'clock at night so we, may, we try and get somewhere between 10 and 12 hours worth of worth of uh collection out of both the launches so we, it's a pretty significant force multiplier if we have the ship is working 24 hours a day and we have both launches working 12 hours a day each we essentially get twice the amount of of data collection in one day because we have, you know, three platforms covering a 48-hour period of data collection in, in, tw- in every 24 hours. So um, you're not like stuck just uh, doing soundings in what we would call federal navigation channels, right? Those approved federal navigation channels that the Army Corps maintains and dredges. You're really, it's much broader for you because your points of navigation are broader than just what we consider the navigation channel. Um, is that correct? And how do you decide how far out on the coastline you're going to go? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So our our, our mapping mission begins where the where the uh, Army Corps of Engineers mapping mission ends. Is a, is a good way to look at this. The Army Corps is is focused on the the channels, the very small narrow areas coming into a into a port. And our mapping mission essentially starts from there, going seaward or going lakeward or going out further into the lakes. Um, and it covers pretty much everything um, in the American territorial waters. Um, from that area out, the areas we tend to focus on are, are the approaches into more busier harbors. Uh, Cleveland is an is a very important commercial harbor. It's one of the I think it's one of the most I think it's one of the busiest ports in the Great Lakes, and I think it's in the top fifty busiest ports in the in the nation. So it's a it's a it's a it's a very important commercial port, and those tend to be the areas where we work. That's those those tend to be areas that have a, a high level of consumers of our of our nautical chart products. Um, and not surprisingly, the the areas that have a higher amount of traffic tend to be the areas where we where we want to do more frequent updating of the nautical charts. Um, that's a, a main driver of how we prioritizes the traffic, uh, the changeability of that area, how much the seafloor may change naturally just from from storm activity or just the natural movement of, of sand and shoals and and, and the sediment. Um, 
and of course the time how 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 long has it been since those since that area was last surveyed um these data kind of exist in in kind of a four dimensions i guess you can kind of think about it. there's a, a latitude a longitude and a depth but there's also a time component to these data and the the, the greater span of time between when that data was collected um and when it's being portrayed on the chart is is a is 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 a is a degradation of sorts. So you guys talked about how you're back in to do things, you know, to do surveying and modern standards. But hey, are there really any old areas where you're still just only have the the, the old lead line, you know, kind of um, uh, measurements? I mean, that's that's really old. It'd be hard to believe it would be in those active areas around Lake Erie. But any areas that you can't believe you really didn't get it like 35 years ago and there's even older soundings you're building from? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, much of the data is is older than fifty. Year, almost all of the data is older is older than fifty years old. Um, so when the when the the last ship that was here thirty years ago um, didn't it did not map the entire lake. The all it didn't map all five Great Lakes. It, it was working kind of similar to what we were doing. It was working in a in a in a, in a prioritized manner in in a, in a different area. So yeah, there are, there are some some incredibly old um, area or some some areas with some incredibly old data on these charts that are there. In, in, in need of updating. Um, most of these data, I think, are, are from vertical beam echo sounders, the single beam echo sounders. Um, I, don't believe any, I don't believe any of the areas that we're working will be removing uh, some old lead line data, but I, I believe that there is still plenty of old lead line data on the charts in the Great Lakes. I have no doubt. And that would be interesting to see where that still is and um, how things have changed so dramatically. We talked about in our surfing podcast the last time about how, you know, those their folks are noticing how the coastlines change all the time because of storms and climate change is impacting the, the number of storms and the strengths of storms. Um, and that then, uh, as the coastline changes and the bottom changes, the surfing changes. Um, so it would be uh, very interesting to have a side-by-side you know, from 50 years ago, or even if there's stuff 100 years ago to now to just see how much it's changed. And um, that could just be an interesting comparison and in how that, uh, if there is any uh, correlation between that and climate change or weather changes. Um, so anybody needs a graduate uh, thesis or dissertation, I think there's one out there for you. Um, I got to ask you, you've been to the, the Western Basin and you've done some surveying around South Bass Island where Putin Bay is and Kelly's Island. Um, did you, um, I mean, you did around the islands. Um, did you stop at night and take the launch into Putin Bay and hang out and have some island wine? <laughs> I, w- I wish we could have. Uh, we um, we did not. We uh, the ship stayed anchored most of the time there. As, as you mentioned, it's very shallow. It's, it was too shallow for the ship to work. So we would we would send the launches out to work during the daytime. Um, we did unfortunately we did not have a chance to kind of run up morale boats into into Putin Bay and, and have some fun in town. Um, we were pretty pretty hard at work and we and we were kind of plugging away at it. I, I don't know if we'd have too many people who were had enough energy to get back in <laughs> to go out for a night on the town. To be quite honest. Yeah, I, I get that. And um, you can't assume you've had really calm, lovely weather every day, right? So what is it like to survey in choppy weather? I mean, is there a way to compensate for the difference? It's not like you're dealing with tides, right? But you do have, you know, um, um, the wind blows a certain way and, and the, you know, lake gets shallower, or especially in Lake Erie, gets shallower or, or deeper. Um, what does the Thomas Jefferson draw? Uh, and um, when you're working in rough weather, how do you compensate for that? Because, again, we talked about um, the Great Lakes, and Lake here in particular can really pick up quickly, right? It's got a short chop, and can't be fun to be in a launch in the short chop on those boats, I know, but on stuff like that. So um, how do you compensate for that when you're doing the measurements? Yeah, sure, that's a great question. You're absolutely right. It, the, uh, uh, the the lake can it can kick up really quickly, and uh, it, it kicks up quickly, and it calms down quickly. I'm, uh, I've been I've been fairly surprised at how just how quickly the the sea the the the, the lake can change. Um, but you're absolutely right. It, it it's uh, it can be fairly unforgiving. As far as as far as uh, compensating with the data, we use um, we correct for for six essentially six degrees of 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 uh, movement on the, on the data on each one of those single soundings that comes in. So we've got, as I mentioned earlier, we've got the latitude longitude position, and then we've got the roll pitch and yaw access, um, which is kind of the, the dynamic motion of the, of the vessel. And those, we, we measure those with uh, an inertial momentum unit, which is a, a, 
a, a unit that we carry on the ship that has um, uh, accelerometers that tell us exactly how the ship is moving to a very finite degree. And those data are applied uh, as applied as correctors to the to the sounding data that we collect. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of um, processing and, and and correction to these data that are done after we after we get that time measurement of the sound going to this down to the lake bed and back. Um, but as far as uh, as far as the small boats, you're right. It it, it uh, it's it's uh, it takes a, a fair amount of, uh, of planning and reading the weather and knowing what's coming and uh, anticipating what's coming to to do it safely. Um, We've been able to operate the boats, our, our launches in, 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 in most weather conditions up until about three to four feet uh, chop is when we, we tend to kind of pull them in and say, okay, that's that's enough for now. Uh, the data starts to getting degraded a bit when, when the weather gets that badly on the, on the small boats. The ship can handle quite a bit. The ship can handle, you know, the ship could survey up until about uh, eight to 10 foot seas. Um, but the, the launch is obviously being smaller. We, need, we, we want to pull them in and get them back on board. Um, when it's still safe to do so. So that tends to be around three to four foot seas is when we'll pull them back in. Um, the ship, uh, I think, uh, I believe you asked how, how, what the draft of the ship is. It's, uh, it's uh, 15 feet is, uh, is, our, is our operational draft. Not a under undercoat clearance to get you into Putin Bay. I, we've uh, had on our podcast one of the previous um, uh, captains of the um, Mackinac, the the icebreaker in the Great Lakes for Coast Guard, and and uh, he got the Mackinac, the new new Mackinac, into Putin Bay when they just happened to have a lot of high water. You know, so it isn't it isn't that you can do it all the time. And I'm curious with a 15 foot draft and heading to the Western Basin. Um, geez, I, I, I would imagine you have to put those launches out, um, send them way far away from the ship to get further. I mean, are you going to even make it to Toledo? Uh, did the ship go to Toledo? Was that the question? Well, I, I think my question was that as you get in that, that around the islands where the average depth is 22 feet, um, and you're, you know, you're drawing 15 feet <clears throat> and, um, seven feet is not a lot of undercoat clearance. And especially if you got a chop. But um, I'm wondering how far west you'll be going in the lakes uh, and how you manage as you get into certain areas. Obviously, you're, getting, you're keeping the ship as in deep water as possible. That's practical. And then sending the launches out to go into, to get in those shallower areas. But I'm wondering how far sometimes you have to send those launches, uh, especially in the western end. Yeah, that's, a, that's a, an excellent question. That's, and that's absolutely what we do. Um, we... Uh... We, we keep the ship in as in the in as safe a water as we can. Um, or as we, we do not, I guess a, a better way to say that maybe maybe that we we do not take the ship into area that in, into an area that we would think would be dangerous for underkill clearance. Um, but again, a lot of times, as as we mentioned, a lot of these data are, are very old. A lot of these data on the chart are very old. Um, so there were a, a few times when we made some uh, our transits to and from uh, the islands. We would send the launch ahead of us. Uh, a day or so ahead of us to kind of ensure that we had enough depth to get the ship through the area that we wanted to go. Um, but as far as, as far as how, fa- how far West we're going to be going, um, the islands are as far West as we're going to be working, but we will be transiting um, to Detroit, closer to, to Detroit to drop the, uh, the launch off. That's going to be doing the um, detached field party work. Um, but then we will kind of follow the established traffic lanes going in there. And that's, those are right around, I think 30 to 40 feet. Uh, depth, so it's it's uh, it's plenty for us to get through there. Okay, yeah, that passage where the <clears throat> commercial ships go through around the Peely Passage and up into Detroit, there's definitely got to be enough because that's where the commercial ships are going. Um, so what is the lag time between the measurements you take and when a chart will be available? Like, when am I get my next Put in Bay chart? That's an ex- excellent question, and um, it can depend on the uh, on the data. If we find something that's particularly dangerous, we call it a, we refer to it as a, a deton, which is an abbreviation that just means means danger to navigation. Um, and those data are immediately sent out for immediate publication. Those will be sent out to no- notice to mariners, and those will be immediately updated uh, on the next cycle to the to the electronic nautical chart. So those data can be, you know, that can be as quick a turnaround as um, we find it one day and it's on the chart within a week or so. Um, um, as far as the entire data set, uh, it's not that quick of a turnaround um, for the entire data set. These data need to be um, QC. There's a lot of quality quality control and quality checking that needs to go into these data before they're published. Um, so the next step for the data after we collect the data and do our initial processing and quality check is to send it to um, to, a, to a shoreside processing branch where, where it will be further uh, quality checked before it goes to, to application to the nautical chart. Once, it's, uh, once it gets to... Um, NOAA's Marine Charting Division, it will be applied to the to the ENC, the, the electronic nautical chart, um, within fairly short order. 
Um, and again, those are the, 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 the time on that is depends on the, um, um, the prioritization and what other data input is coming through the Marine Chart Division at that time. Yeah, so for our listeners who may not know what ENC is, and it's an electronic nautical chart, um, could you just explain, um, I know it's a little divergent from just being in Lake Erie, but NOAA is transferring a lot of the paper charts and just going to electronic charts, which does not mean that you can't get a paper chart, but it's called print-on-demand, I think, and, and you can go to a third-party provider who can print it out from you from the ENC. So I would think one of the biggest advantages of working now in a more virtual digital chart world is the quickness with which you can get data from the ship to the quality control and onto a chart, and the sooner a person can get the updates on that chart. So um, could you explain, am I saying that correctly? I, I think I'm close. And I say that because a lot of folks you know, we, when we were growing up, you you got the chart that ever the you know the ship chandler or the the um you know the local um, supply store would have, um, and they would buy the charts already printed out, um, and you to get an update, you had to physically write it on the paper chart because you didn't have an updated chart until there was a completely new um, uh, survey done and then reprinted. But now, with electronic charts and getting away from that paper chart concept. Uh, and being able to have access to the ENCs more quickly and download them and, or print out or put onto your laptop, I guess, or onto your, your handheld phone, um, that chart. So um, am, I, am I saying that correctly, Commander, that, you know, I, I want people to understand that the loss of a paper chart is not the loss of access to charts. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, the loss of the paper chart um, and again, as you mentioned, the, the paper charts aren't fully going away. You, you still will be able to buy a chart uh, that is printed on paper, but it, that chart will be made from the data that are on the ENC, the electronic not, um, navigational chart. So it'll be more up to date. It'll be up to date as you buy it. It'll be printed on demand at, as up to date as the day you bought it. Um, whereas as, as, you, as you mentioned, you know, that used to be, you know, you'd, you'd go down to the Marine hardware store, you'd pick a chart that was from some edition from, you know, 10 years ago and you'd have 10 years worth of notice to mariners to apply to that chart, you know, um, so you, the, the immediate applicable use of that chart has gone up uh, significantly um, by, by making this an ENC first, the electronic nautical chart first um, application. And as I said, I think um, probably mo uh, the majority of our users now are probably using our ENCs, the electronic navigation charts through an app on their phone or, or an app on a, on a, on a tablet um, or, a, or a navigation um, like a, a navigational unit that they have on their small boat and those data can be you know downloaded from uh from the office of coast survey website um just as up to date as as the day they're downloaded um which is in, in incredibly useful for mariners um incredibly it's much much safer for mariners to get that to get that the freshest most up-to-date uh, product directly yeah i i know it could make people nervous not to have the paper chart but the fact is you can get one printed out if you really feel you need it you can you can pay to like a third-party provider who are licensed i think by noaa to be able to print those out um but also nowadays so many people are looking at stuff on their phones um that i think the recreational boaters in particular just would rather look up something on their phone and you can do that by going to the noaa website for that um yeah, so so um, I got a hold of you through through uh, Rear Admiral Chad Carey, and Admiral Ch uh, Carey is the Deputy Director at NOAA's Office of Maritime and Aviation Operations, which is um, essentially one of his second in charge, including the NOAA Corps. And you are a uniformed, like a civilian uniformed <clears throat> corps, the NOAA Corps. You wear uniforms, um, which look a lot like Navy uniforms, I have to say. Um, but um, you're not military. You're civilian. And I'm, and I'm working with Admiral, I mentioned this because I'm working with Admiral Carey about recruitment and retention of mariners. And NOAA uh, Corps is having trouble finding mariners. And I'm, I'm sending this out there because I want to put a plug for how to become a mariner um, or work on a NOAA ship because um, there's a couple of ways to do it. And and I don't think I'd love to know how you became how you became in the NOAA Corps because you don't have to go to a maritime school to become a mariner with NOAA, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Um, and we are uh, the NOAA. The, there are two separate kind of um, um, 
Mariner systems, I guess, with in that operate NOAA's uh, ships. They're the commissioned officers um, of which I'm a part of. And, and as you said, we're a, an, an independent service branch. We're, con- we're considered active active duty uniform service officers. So we hold a commission uh, the same way a, a Navy officer or an Army officer or a Coast Guard officer holds a commission. So we are commissioned officers. Um, those are the uniform service uh, part of uh, of NOAA's um, uh, maritime. Uh, services. The other part are civilians, as you mentioned, and these are um, ABs, engineers, uh, survey technicians, stewards. Um, the, the, um, everyone who's not an officer is a is a civilian, which is is uh, is a big difference from the other commissioned vessels in the United States. Um, NOAA vessels are commissioned the same way a, a, a Coast Guard ship or a, or a Navy ship is commissioned, um, so they're considered you know, a, an official U.S. government vessel. Um, under commission. That's the reason we have commissioned officers uh, as as the as the drivers, as the as the sailors on these ships. Uh, most other commissioned vessels have enlisted personnel. Um, you think of a, a, a navy enlisted person or a coast guard enlisted person as the as the the non officer cohort of that ship. No ships are totally different. The the non officer cohort on a ship are civilians. They work for um, Department of Commerce as a, a civilian mariner. Um, and many of them come in from maritime academies, particularly the licensed licensed engineering officers. They they tend to come from maritime academies, but the officer, the commissioned officers, don't often come from maritime academies. We come from um, uh, scientific backgrounds, engineering backgrounds, um, prior military service is another another way to to come into the NOAA Corps. Um, but it's an absolutely fantastic place to work, and I absolutely, um, if there's anyone out there listening who who uh, wants to try it out and wants to look at it, I would I would highly recommend you. Uh, you know, get onto the wage mariner hiring portal for NOAA, go and or do a Google search for sale for NOAA or sail with NOAA um, and, and, uh, and put their application in because it's a fantastic place to work. Um, I found out about the NOAA Corps largely by accident. I was um, in graduate school um, finishing up my, um, my thesis work and I uh, was uh, kind of doing some existential thinking about what I really liked about marine science and what I didn't like. And what I really liked was being out in the field and doing work on boats and out on the ocean, what I did really did not like was being in a lab or writing up a thesis or teaching classes. <laughs> so, so I was looking around for ways that would, that would keep me working on the ocean and working in the field. And uh, one of the postdoctoral fellows at my graduate school mentioned the NOAA Corps and I looked it up online. I sent an application in and uh, a few months later, I was at uh, my basic officer training uh, class at Kings Point, New York, the United States Merchant Marine Academy in Kings Point, New York. And shortly after that, I was driving uh driving ships around the ocean and i've been kind of doing that ever since yeah you can go to I, I, i'm plugging this folks because um shortage of mariners is a crisis in the united states um and we forget that while we need mariners in the commercial side there are federal agencies that hire mariners and NOAA being one of them army corps being another military seal of command and they're all short of mariners so there's lots of opportunities like sailing for science when you work for NOAA, and you can go to marinerhiring.noaa.gov and you don't have to have a lot of experience if you have gone to some mariner training and gotten your basic license basic credentials um terrific um but um NOAA has the ability to direct hire mariners i keep plugging this because i i know it is a, an issue because i work with NOAA on this uh and i want a federal um force to have what they need to do the job they need to do and what you guys do with NOAA is huge because charting and mapping goes directly to the safety of our coastlines and the people uh life liberty and pursuit of uh of commerce so um i appreciate everything you guys do so now how long will you guys be in Lake Erie? What time, when is it you think you'll be heading back out? You're going to go try to go back to Norfolk before it freezes up, right? (laughs) Yes, ma'am. We are, right now we're planning to be here through uh, mid-October. Around the uh, second week of October, we'll probably start our transit um, down the St. Lawrence Seaway and back uh, back home to Norfolk. Um, We need to, uh, we need to be back to Norfolk uh, kind of by the end of October. We have a Every you know, ships like uh, like anything else need need time for repair, need time for things that that break to be fixed. Um, and our time to repair things is typically uh, November, December, January timeframe, so that we can get get going for our next year, kind of uh, starting in February and March. Um, so it's important for us. It's important for us for the ship itself to get back to Norfolk uh, to get it 
to get it repaired, get it fixed, get it ready to go, keep it maintained, keep it properly running. But it's also important for us to get our Mariners back home too. Everyone's, uh, everyone's every, by, by the, by the middle of October, I think everyone will be quite eager to get back home. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm guessing because you are home ported in the Norfolk, Virginia area that your family is in that area, but, or how many people actually live someplace else and, uh, just get out on the ship when the ship is out? Uh, for Thomas Jefferson, a, a large portion of, uh, of the crew live in Norfolk or Virginia Beach or the Hampton Roads area. Um, I'm a, I, I, I live in Williamsburg, Virginia, which is just uh, kind of the same area. It's not very far away from Norfolk. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the, the majority of our folks do live here locally. Um, we do have a few who live in different areas. We've got, um, um, you know, actually one of our engineers is from Detroit. Uh, we've got a few that live in, uh, in New England. Um, but for the most part, most of our folks are, are kind of from the Hampton Roads area. So it's good. It's good for us to get them home, you know, for the holidays. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I hope that your trip back to Norfolk was as fun and interesting as your trip in. And um, so when you leave, you're going to head out of Lake Erie and go in the Welland Canal, and then you're going to do some charting, you said, in Lake Ontario. Any area in particular in Lake Ontario? Uh, yeah, this is the this is the work that we're doing in support of, uh, of a proposed new sanctuary. Um, uh, I've seen some various... Uh, various proposals, I think, for the different size and shape of the sanctuary. But the area we're going to be working is mostly um, kind of the deeper areas near uh, Oswego, New York, um, kind of on our way back home. We're going to stop for a couple of weeks, do some do some deep water mapping or deeper water mapping in Lake Ontario, uh, kind of on our way toward the toward the seaway and back home. Well, terrific. And I, I've got to say, folks, that I think being the commander on the Thomas Jefferson is a is a pretty important gig for Noah. So, Matt, I see uh, more bars and stars in your future for sure. And I hope they have the opportunity to work together in other ways. So, um, golly, thank you so much um, for joining us. Is there anything you'd like to share with us before we sign off? Yeah, thank you, Helen. Thank you very much. I really appreciate really appreciate the opportunity uh, and the invitation to be on your podcast. I think you have a, a wonderful podcast and it's a, a great opportunity for me to, to talk about Thomas Jefferson and, and Noah and Noah's mission here and the great economic and ecological importance of the Great Lakes. It's, uh, it's been a wonderful, wonderful time. I appreciate being, the ability to be here. Well, thank you. And thanks for calling us from the ship. It sounds really good and wish you very safe, happy sailing. This wraps up another episode of North Coast Chronicles Tales from the Great Lakes. Send me your comments, ideas for future podcasts, or to be a sponsor to northcoastchronicles at gmail.com. The views of this podcast are mine and do not necessarily reflect the views of the U.S. Department of Transportation. Join us next time on North Coast Chronicles as we check out where to have fun in the sun on the islands of the Great Lakes. Until then, be good to one another.